Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 296 of the podcast. It's January 10th, 2018. Joining me today is Dr. Zev Kane. He is a physician and a chancellor's professor at the University of California, Irvine. He has many additional roles and titles, including he's the Director of System Redesign and Value-Based Care for the UC Irvine Health Policy Research Institute. He's Executive Director of the UCI Yale Center on Stress and Health, and he's the President of the American College of Perioperative Medicine. Dr. Kane is recognized as an international expert in the clinical management of perioperative fear and anxiety and management of children undergoing invasive medical procedures. His research addresses major dilemmas encountered in the management of affected children. And beyond all of that, he uh, is also an advocate for Lean and Six Sigma in healthcare and the connections to reducing uh, what's referred to as clinical variation in Um, the healthcare realm. So that's what we're talking about today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, For links and more information, you can go to leanblog.org slash 296. Dr. Kane, hi. Thank you for joining us here on the podcast today. It's my pleasure to be here this morning. Well, I think we're going to have a lot of um, interesting things to hear about. And um, before we dive into topics related to lean and critical uh, clinical variation, things like that. Maybe you can first just give a little bit of your background for the listeners um, about yourself and your professional career. Sure. It's my pleasure. So I was born in Israel, um, served uh, three years in the Israeli military, um, did medical school there, met my wife uh, 30 some years there. Um, and then we decided to uh, move to the United States. I have two wonderful girls. One of them just got engaged, so we're very happy. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank, thank you. It's, it's, always, it's always fun planning the wedding, I mean. <laughs> uh, I trained on the East Coast uh, at Yale and Harvard in uh, anesthesiology and pediatrics. I stayed on faculty um, at Yale for the next 20 years. Uh, before moving to the West Coast about 10 years ago and first becoming chair of anesthesiology and in charge of the operating rooms um, and then being the associate dean of clinical operations of um, the entire uh, healthcare enterprise. Obviously, within that role, I was in charge of Lean and Six Sigma, clinical variation, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have done that for about eight years. So lot, lots of experience in, uh, in that area. Yeah. So can, I'm, I'm always curious, uh, well, I'm always curious how people get exposed to lean, especially uh, as, as a physician and anesthesiologist. What, what was your initial introduction and, and you know, did, did it pique your interest initially or, you know, how, what, if you can talk about that. Sure. So I was introduced relatively early. Um, I think by now I was introduced almost 20 years ago, uh, perhaps 17 years ago. Um, GE, which you remember was the was the real pusher those days, uh, cut a deal with Yale New Haven um, Yale New Haven Hospital System, 
and part of that deal was that they will provide training on Lean and Six Sigma to selected uh, Yale New Haven leadership. Uh, a, a very small number of physicians was selected. Uh, in fact, I remember, I think I was one of two physicians total um, out of perhaps 150 people who uh, were exposed to this methodology. I took a liking to it immediately. Um, and that happened most probably because I am uh, first and foremost a, a research scientist. I've, I've been funded by the NIH for more than 20 years. And to me, it's, it sits on very scientific foundation. It makes sense. It's evidence-based. And you define a problem and have outcomes. So I, I liked it immediately. Yeah. So did you volunteer uh, for, for that training? Did you get nominated? Um... Oh, I, I volunteered for that training. Yeah. yeah, no, no question about it. Mm -hmm. And and there were 150 people being trained, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So those were, um, I, yeah, that would have been, I think, pretty early days of lean in healthcare. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, at the time, I mean, my, my impression of GE at the time is that they were all in on Six Sigma and that if, you know, in the early 2000s, they started incorporating lean what, what was your recollection of that i think you're very accurate with what you said in fact we first trained with cap uh with with ge um and then six sigma and we actually have then traveled to texas to a company which i don't recall its name already um that was uh that trained us on lean uh, so at that time, actually, we we got um, we got different training between Lean and Six Sigma by two different entities. Okay, so it wasn't a GE factory; it was a different company. They they helped arrange that for Lean. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. And and CAP for people who aren't familiar is, that stands for Change Acceleration Process. Is that is that right? It does. It does. And and it brings up an interesting point to your listeners that I always feel I, I have to make, which is both uh, Six Sigma and Lean are, are methodologies that don't take into account the change management process from a behavioral perspective. Um, and that's something you have to pay very careful attention to. CAP actually is a behavioral component to it. Uh, and obviously there are, there are other methodologies out there for the behavior stuff, mm -hmm. but we really have to remember not to neglect that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, recently in episode 292 of the podcast, we talked with two clinical psychologists and a clinical social worker about um, behavior change and, and change management and lean, um, you know, built around a methodology called motivational interviewing. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think even, I agree that's important. I think even, you know, Toyota uh, has a really high level of uh, employee engagement of, in, instead of forcing change on people, engaging them in, in the process. Um, I, not, not everybody does that, unfortunately, in the context of their attempts to copy Toyota or other lean organizations. So um, I, I agree with you. I've seen organizations struggle when they are not taking the human factor, behavioral elements, change management approaches into consideration. Yep. 
maybe you know before moving on to you know the clinical variation topic i'm i'm, I'm curious either you know recollections from the initial training or or how your views might have evolved today when it comes to the combination of of lean and six sigma what are your thoughts on that obviously uh, th- these are two separate questions for me um as far as impressions from initial training, I was very uh, enthusiastic about it, and it it helped me to understand the way uh, people around me have sought. Uh, we have used it immediately to implement projects in the children's hospital where I was located at the time and to implement it on the operating rooms there. Um, Later on, obviously, we, we separated between Lean and Six Sigma, and, and I can I can talk about that if you want to. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would be curious where that where that separation was found because you know, my my own personal view is that Lean and Six Sigma can be combi- uh, can be complementary in the organization. I, I don't view it as a combined methodology. I, I think of it as Lean and Six Sigma, if that matters, compared to quote unquote Lean Sigma. But I, can you elaborate on, on your thoughts on, on that? I think that this entire area is a bit, I'm going to call it unregulated. Mm-hmm. And so there's no real clear official definition, uh, definitions on, on, on almost anything in this, including uh, what's, a, what's a black belt, what's a blue, what's a pink belt. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, how is the training done? You know, when I got trained, it was a six-month process. It was a project. Now you, you can go on the web and find, mm-hmm. train for three hours and get a black belt. Uh, yeah. So, so obviously, um, it, it's an unregulated industry, and, and people have, have taken just to call names to processes because it's, it's if I can use the term, it's sexy. Um, now, as far as Lean Sigma, I think it is two separate processes. That said, there are organizations out there, such as uh, Hopkins, uh, and what Hopkins has done is they have combined the two of them, and they are offering a product called Lean Sigma for healthcare. Mm-hmm. And if you go through that training, you, you find that it's essentially a combination of both of them. They kind of picked, cherry-picked from both. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, in fact, have brought it out to University of California at Irvine, and we trained over 200 physicians. Well, we trained over 200 individuals uh, in, in this methodology. And, and perhaps later on we can go into the physician's training. But, uh, but certainly they thought that they can combine these two. Um, so let, let, uh, I'd like to you know, maybe we can come back to that, but I would uh, really like to delve into you know topics we haven't really covered here on the podcast, including this idea of uh, clinical variation. Um, so if you can talk about that, maybe first, I mean, I think a lot of uh, you know people without a clinical background might not even know a formal definition of clinical variation. What are some of the the problems that we might see from a, a patient standpoint when there's clinical variation. Can you give us a little introduction to that, please? The, the words clinical variation, if we analyze them, clinical is obviously the clinical aspects of patient management, and variation is variation, as we as we all know it. Um, now, 
The challenge is when you have two patients who are identical in every aspect, why should we not treat them the same way? Hmm. Now, when you go into the industry world, the question is even strange. I mean, what, what do you mean? We have standards and we follow them. Um, and all iPhones, as an example, are produced the same way. Uh, this is absolutely not true in medicine. And if you walk into a physician's office, you will find out that patient A will get one treatment, patient B will get a second treatment. Now, here is the complexity. Many physicians will tell you that that's because patients are different. Maybe, but not necessarily so. A lot of these variants is because of the system issues and because of individual beliefs of physicians. And so if a physician, for example, has read something interesting yesterday in the journal, they may immediately mm -hmm. implement it the following day. Uh, is that justified variation? I don't know. Um, the biggest impact, though, I think, is in hospital settings when you have various guidelines by various specialties for the same disease. So for example, the American uh, Hospitalist Association, uh, in fact, it's called the Society of Hospital Medicine, and the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons have two different guidelines of how to manage a condition which is called venous, thrombo uh, venous thrombo thrombus embolism. Uh, and so, or VTE. So uh -huh. the challenge for the nurses is that patient A, they'll get order A, patient B, they'll get order B. Now, I'm sure you know, and if you don't, we all should, that 300,000 people in this country die every year because of medical errors. Um, in fact, medical errors is the third leading cause for deaths in the United States beyond heart disease and cancer. And so you ask yourself, why is this happening? And absolutely, on top of lack of communication, it's the issue of clinical variability. It's the issue that every patient is managed the way their physician feels at that moment they should be managed. Now, now let, let, let me ask a couple, couple follow-ups um, to that. Um, yeah, there, there's some controversy, or you know, the, you know that that the the numbers around, or you know, the estimates of how many patients die due to medical error. Um, do, do you feel like the numbers are at least as valid as as any the the numbers that suggest that it's the third leading cause of death? I would refer the audience to an excellent article that was published at the British Medical Journal, um, and what they have done is they in fact reviewed. Uh, the, the um, death certificates of patients in the United States. Um, and they looked at the reasons listed in the death certificates. And so if anything, it's actually an, it's, it's an under number. Mm. Now, uh, we can tell you that if you look at data from organizations such as HealthGrade, uh, and then you cross that data with scientific data from British Medical Journal, it always lands between 250 and 300. There's just no question about it. Uh, so, yes, we can deny the problem exists, 
but we're not going to fix it that way. Oh, I, I, I agree. I agree. And I, and I think there are some who, who sort of do uh, deny the extent of, of the problem. And, um, and I think some of these numbers are unknowable, but the problem is, is, is definitely a large one and, and, and something that we need to work on. And, you know, so I'm, I'm curious within the realm of, of clinical variation, I, I've seen one of the types of medical error um, be, uh, be described as uh, diagnostic error. You know, I, I think of, to, to me at least as a non-physician, process errors related to communication problems, uh, the, the flow of medication, um, you know, mix-ups, surgical errors, things like that are maybe easier to uh, determine to be an error. Um, can, can you talk more about, you know, the realm of, of diagnostic error? How does somebody determine if there was a diagnostic error made and you know how how severe, how common of a problem is that 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 ties into this notion of clinical variation right it does and uh perhaps the most common error is an execution error um so that's not to say the diagnostic errors don't happen but they happen relatively more rarely than an execution um, than an execution error. Okay. And in fact, mo most errors do not occur because of lack of knowledge. Uh, right. Most errors occur because of execution issues. And just to give you a small example, um, when you program a pump to deliver a certain uh, infusion, and, and I'll be specific, it's, it's how many uh, cc's per minute, uh, humans, when they program 10 pumps, they will make a mistake at least in one of them. That's it. Uh, that's well known and uh, you can't fix it. it it's yeah. the way we are as humans. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is we need to design systems that will actually take that into account and protect us. And, and if yes. you want, you can get into how do you do these pumps, but this is all clinical variation and so you can't really eliminate the clinical variation as a result of humans what you kind of have to do is you really have to um is you really have to take care of it right um so a follow-up question on the scenario about two different patients going into a clinic with the same condition perhaps getting two separate treatments um in, in, the, in the scenario, it didn't seem like that sounded like a, a real formal, um, intentional scientific experiment. Uh, you know, if a doctor reads about a new approach and they, it seems convincing, is it appropriate for them to go then try a test of change with a patient? Or what, what, what do you think should happen and, and what do you think kind of currently happens in those cases? So I think it's a multifactorial question. Um, we as physicians are trained to treat each patient and generally speaking it is absolutely the right thing to do um, except when um, we make those decisions based on variables such as an article that I read yesterday in pediatrics now here is the challenge um, some of us have been trained years ago, and so we will carry on the practice as we did years ago. And there have been developments in that area, and we'll be exposed to those developments in continuous medical education and, and, and so on. 
Now, articles are not always the best source of evidence. Uh, yes, there is a peer review process, but the fact that you read something yesterday and now you're implementing it may or may not be a problem. Uh, furthermore, the more complicated issue is that you had a patient in a certain uh, with a certain uh, disease, you managed them with a certain medication, it did not work, and now you're switching all the management of all the patients based on that one patient. Mm. So that that is that is complicated. Now, on top of that, there is a whole new area that's coming down, which is called precision medicine or personalized medicine. And so some people try to say that that is the reason why they should not avoid clinical variation. And, and honestly, that's apples and oranges. Uh, personalized medicine refers to the specific characteristics uh, in genomics or phenotypic of an individual that you need to change the treatment based on them. That's, that's absolutely great and the right thing to do. But when you change the treatment based on the system or based on your individual beliefs as a practitioner, that's not personalized medicine. That's just mm -hmm. the confirmation. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's a difference between an intentional scientific process and uh, forgive the expression, just throwing something against the wall you got to it. see if it sticks, right? I mean, I, I mean, I can think of, um, you know, situations where I used to have. Um, uh, oh, this is not getting too personal. Don't worry. But you know, um, you know, uh, some spots on on my forearms and the top of my hands, and you know, different dermatologists. You know, they 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 they're having to go through a process of ruling some things out and. Um, you know, trying to do testing. Is this micro, is this something uh, microbial? Is it something fungal? Um, you know, different biopsy and diagnostic processes. I, you know, it seemed more structured than just trial and error, but um, you know, kind of reached a point where it stumped a lot of, uh, including some Harvard trained specialists. And, you know, it became more actually, you know, in my own personalized medicine, a process of trial and error. I eliminated soy from my diet and the allergists and dermatologists all said no a, a food reaction would not create uh, a localized <laughs> reaction on your skin but all i could prove out was through my own experience i stopped eating soy and those spots went away which you know i don't fault any of the doctors involved um and i'm not asking you to diagnose me <laughs> over a podcast but i think it just kind of goes to show no respect to any of the doctors but um it, it seems like it's an imperfect science. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts? It is um, an imperfect science. In fact, uh, many of my colleagues refer to it as the arts or, or as the art of medicine. And it's not an accidental word. Um, it's, it's, it's complicated. Uh, I would like to mostly focus clinical variation on reducing variation of the system um, I think if we can start there, that would be a great place to start. So, uh, for example, uh, let's go to back to that, to that uh, patients who, let's go back to those nurses who were told to give medication A based on the recommendation of the orthopedic societies and medication B based on the, on the recommendation of the hospitalist societies. 
That's a system-based variation. That has nothing to do with the patients. So we have to focus on that kind of variation and say that does not make sense, okay? Uh, mm-hmm. We really have to figure out one way, and I'm actually going to go further than that. I'm going to say that you need a protocol, and people talk about evidence-based always, and I'm just going to say evidence-based of today changes for tomorrow. So I'm just going to say we need a protocol to start with, and then we can work, worry about the evidence-based or not. You're going back a little bit. I, it sounds like what I hear you saying is uh, you know, that not all variation is bad. Um, some variation is necessary based on patients and circumstances. Did, did you find, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really a, a Six Sigma expert, but you know, it seems like at least conversationally Six Sigma focuses on variation reduction or elimination of variation. There's almost an implication that all variation is bad, which I think might be true in a simpler system. You know, let's say where I started my career, we were cutting metal, you know, for car engines. That is, I think, a much more known science. And any amount of variation in the size of an engine component could conceivably cause some problem. So I could see, you know, um, you know, in that context, you might say, you know, we, we really need to minimize variation. And if we do so, uh, engines will perform better, costs will be lower. Um, but it seems like that, 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 that notion of all variation being bad doesn't apply in medicine. I'm curious, you know, to hear more about that. And, and did that seem, did, did your sick, did you question some of the six, six Sigma training? Am I misrepresenting that? What, what are your thoughts? Yes. And, um, (laughs) it's always true, isn't it? If you look at the classical Lin Sigma, uh, uh, Six Sigma training, um, you're basically talking about high reliability. So the word sigma is actually the word standard deviation in uh, in um, in Greek, and so Six Sigma essentially means that uh, you need to achieve a situation where you have an error once every essentially 3.4 million occurrences. That's what what it says. Now, um, I'll give you an example of when it's being used. So, for example, it's being used to reduce cancellation rate of patients to the operating room. Let's let's use that as an example. So, uh, if you look at that, um, you do the domain approach, which is define, measure, analyze, improve, and control. And and by the way, I just love that approach for almost anything in life, because the first stage is define. And when you say reduce cancellation rate, that didn't tell me anything yet. Uh, do you want the reduced cancellation rate for the inpatients or the outpatients? Uh, do you want it for scheduled cases or emergency cases? Uh, do you want it between what hours of the day? So once you do that, you drill into, and I will not go through the process, but you drill into the reasons, the main reasons for the variation. And then you handle those particular reasons. So 
we do not use Six Sigma to manage the conditions of individual patients. We use it to fix the system in hospitals and clinics. Um, and, and some of the fixes are related to operational efficiency, such as I just gave you an example, and other fixes are clinical. Um, there is a very famous study that was done by Peter Provenos from Hopkins uh, in, uh, in Michigan. And what he has done is he implemented specific guidelines using Six Sigma for uh, insertion of central lines, which are lines that are put into your large uh, uh, blood vessels. And infection there is a real big problem. And by mm -hmm. standardizing and reducing variation in the way you put those lines in and you maintain them, they reduce the, the, the number of people who die and have diseases significantly. Mm -hmm. So you absolutely can use it for a clinical, um, clinical implementation as well. And uh, you know, I've seen a lot of instances where uh, I, mean, I think you know, sometimes people say, well, Six Sigma focuses on reducing variation. I, I would argue and point to evidence that says, well, so does lean. <laughs> you know, the idea of standardizing uh, the way we do work. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there are examples. I blogged recently. Toyota worked with the Children's Health uh, System in Dallas. They, um, you know, th using lean methods, reduced uh, CLABSI rates in the NICU by 75%. And I tell you, it didn't require, it doesn't sound like it required a lot of deep statistical analysis. It involved observing the work, noticing that uh, not everybody was always following best practices. There was a gap in what the known, I think in this case, there was maybe a bit of a knowledge gap, not just an execution gap, as you put it earlier, but you know, uh, uh, nurses were placing sterile items on a non-sterile uh, bed surface. And I think people had a blind spot to that. And somebody from Toyota asked, you know, the fresh eyes question of, well, why are you sitting that down on the bed? Is the bed really clean? And, you know, so they've worked on reducing that variation in practice. Um, and, and, and I think that's something that, that also led to measurable, uh, positive effect for, uh, for, for the patients. Um, you know, I was curious if you could comment a little bit more. Um, I, I, years ago, I saw Dr. Brent James from Intermountain um, talk at the Shingo Prize conference. And one thing that stood out to me, he said something to the effect of, uh, you know, there really is only true evidence in maybe about 30% of medical cases, uh, you know, and that was seven or eight years ago. I mean, does, does that sort of seem you know, uh, approximately accurate to you? And, and it, it, are we getting more evidence-based practice or does it come back again to it being complicated and, and not always having a best practice for everything? I would agree with him. Uh, I think that much of what we do, we do based on what we think at that moment and tradition. Uh, without always a lot of evidence, and um, I can give you many examples of that. Uh, are we making progress? We are to some degree, and I'm going to say that that's just one more proof why we need to watch what we do as far as clinical variation. Because we don't have clear evidence for everything, we at least want to make sure that we, when, when we do that, we identify variations and, and problems.
Does that make right. sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, can you maybe, can you share some examples maybe in your work, uh, you know, currently in, in, in training physicians about Lean and Six Sigma? I mean, can you think of some cases where you've identified clinical variation and, and been able to address it? Um, sure. <laughs> Let's take a very simple example of um, let let's stick to the kids area because that's mm-hmm. the first example I've given you. Um, when you take a child into the operating room and you anesthetize them, you typically do it by placing a mask on their face. Um, and the next question will be, well, which gas are you going to use? Now, right now, there are not a whole lot of gases in the market, so at least that variation has has changed. But the next question is, well, how do you apply that gas? Uh, Well, some people start with 6%. Some people start with 4%. um, Some people start with waiting for two minutes and starting the IV. Um, Some people put smell in that mask. Some people don't put smell in that mask. Um, People think that if the child cries, it's no big deal. Other people will avoid a, a... a crying child in, in every possible way. Um, does that answer your question? Um, yeah, yeah and, I, and I think the, you know, the follow-up question is, once you identify the variation, what, what approach have you found to be effective? Um, you know, I think, you know, doc, looking at you know, my notes from Dr. James's talk, you know, he said, you know, you can't lead doctors through command and control practices. And I think you could you could make that same statement about anybody, uh, you know, telling people to do their work a different way um, is, is not a great strategy, especially when doctors have the professional freedom to say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. Have you, have you found helpful practices for trying to gain consensus? Um, how, how, how do you invite somebody to try a, a different way that you hope is a better way? So I always think about the work of, of John Cotter, um, mm-hmm. and John had a, um, well, I shouldn't call him John, I don't know him personally, but John Cotter is a, a change transformation guru from Harvard, from their business school, Right. Um, and he specifically um, talks about the eight changes or the eight stages of change management, and the first one is build a burning platform. So, number one, if the physicians are not convinced that there is a problem, you're not going to be able to move them. Uh, If they are convinced that there is a problem, the next stage is going to be really for physicians to provide them data. Uh, Physicians love data. And so if you show them the data and they're convinced that there is a problem, now you need to come up with a solution and again show them the data that that's the right solution to be implemented. And... Perhaps the most important thing is physicians need to be part of the process mm-hmm. and not and, and all too frequently the administration just comes and says, well, we want you to use this particular sutures because it will save us money. And they never ask the physician what should be those sutures be. They basically go for the cheapest price. Again, not, not ideal. No. So um, I think that, uh, you know, you just have to be patient with them. Yeah. And I I think there needs to be, you know, interaction, collaboration, 
conversation. I mean, I, I, I cringe when I hear you or others talk about, you know, somebody sort of trying to force best practice on people. You, you might at best get compliance. I mean, let's say a hospital says we are literally not going to buy that certain implant or supply anymore. Um, I, 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 I'd hate to think, you know, maybe, boy, administration won the battle, but they're losing the war. How much disgruntlement, uh, you know, results from that sort of forced top-down kind of decision. I, I, I really hate hearing about that. It seems like, like you said, you know, evidence, practice hopefully would be compelling. But, you know, I think back to, you know, your first stage of, of Cotter's model and the burning platform, um, I, I found in a lot of cases working with many professionals in different settings that there is a, a, a lack of agreement that there's even a problem. Somebody says, no, I mean, you know, doing it this way works for me. And they don't see a gap or a problem. Um, I guess you might try evidence, but I don't know. In my experience, not, not sound too cynical. I don't mean to sound, I'm trying to sound realistic. People are complicated. You know, there's, there's habit, there's emotion, there's a, you know, attachment to the old way. There's, there's fear that the new way might not be as good. And, and, and that might be an understandable fear. Um, th those are difficult things to try to work through, right? Agreed with everything you said. Well, that's boring, but no. Uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, um, but I'm sorry, you had other thoughts on that, though? or No, I, th I think you're correct. Uh, but, but at the same time, we really have to remember, I, I served uh, on both sides as a physician and as an administrator. It's complicated, and it's complicated yeah. because many physicians will just take the approach of well, this is the suture I want to do today. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, because I actually saw the rep yesterday and she was really nice and she wanted me to try it. And what I'm telling you is not out of line. It, it, it is happening. Yeah. Uh, so that's not appropriate either. So it, it, has to be, it has to be carefully done. I'm, I'm curious, maybe, you know, as we start to wrap up in a couple of minutes, if you have any other thoughts or reflections on... Uh, effective strategies for engaging physicians um, to, to piquing their interest into learning about uh, lean and, and six sigma. What, what, what have you found that works well? Do you have any uh, cautionary tales about something that doesn't work well? I would say that you need to make sure you have a burning platform with them. They need to understand why they are training and how will they implement the training? And you really need to uh, make them a partner uh, in this process. Um, if you, you know, if you will make them a partner um, in this process, um, they can be an amazing, uh, uh, an amazing partner. And indeed, when I implemented it at at UC uh, UC Irvine Health, we actually made sure that all the clinical chairs were trained. And we made sure that residents were trained. And and that's how you basically start the process. Are, are you finding more success in, you know, if, if you're inviting doctors to take part in training or are you seeing uh, more more interest? Are, are you seeing younger doctors or residents even coming out of medical school with, with already having some hopefully positive exposure to some of these approaches? Yes. Yes, absolutely. No question about it. That's that's good to hear because you know I I, I 
you know, I always cringe when I I hear executives or, or leaders at different levels, from my perspective, sort of blaming doctors or dumping on them for being resistant to change and the doctors aren't engaged. And I usually try to ask, hopefully in a friendly enough way, well, what are you doing to engage them? You know, I think that's a two-way street. I've seen too many organizations take actions to actively disengage the doctors. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, for the sake of patients, the, the sake of uh, physician satisfaction and preventing burnout, you know, I think we, we all need to figure out better ways. And I'm, I'm glad that, that you're part of that discussion, Dr. Kane. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I, I, I agree with uh, <laughs> what with uh, what what you've said here. Other than you know, the, the the clinical realm, I, I I will trust your professional judgment on <laughs> those questions of uh, being a physician. But um, I always do appreciate um, when when physicians are are willing to um, you know draw upon practices from outside of, of medicine. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, to, to wrap things up, I, I, do you have any sort of final thoughts on that on that question around, um, you know, learning, being inspired by other industries without trying to just copy what others have done? Where, where do you find that balance? What are your thoughts? I think that um, we have done a tremendous uh, progress from 20 years ago when I trained in this to today. I think that people are talking about um, clinical variation today in a very open way, and it is getting better, and 20 years ago it was a no-no. Um, and so it, it is great. We are borrowing from other industries. Medicine, in fact, has to continue and borrow even more. Uh, and I will just bring one example and we'll stop. The fact that if you go to a bank, you can now, from your computer, get data on all your monies everywhere in the world, but at the same time, you cannot get any data on your lab tests from your own hospital. That's just one example where we can learn a lot from the banking industry. That's just, mm -hmm. again, an example. Yeah, well, as, as you pointed out and with the data and numbers you cited, you know, there is uh, definitely much room for improvement in healthcare. Uh, I hope we start making progress on those numbers related to patient harm and, and deaths due to different types of medical error. Um, it seems like, you know, progress has, has been slow, unfortunately, you know, different studies. I'm trying to end this on, boy, this is not a positive note to end on, but um, we'll, we'll come back to a positive thought. Um, you know, the, these different numbers and studies over the last 20 years, um, if anything suggests the numbers are higher, or at least the estimates are higher. We have pockets of great success. Um, my, my own frustration is that those pockets of success don't lead to faster, wider adoption of, of practices that can reduce infections, reduce falls, reduce surgical errors, things like that. Um, do you have thoughts on, on what we can do to maybe help inspire more widespread change in healthcare? Not really. I think that we have covered uh, a significant amount of landscape. I think that the future trends in healthcare are in the United States are, are two prone. One is digital health, and digital health is coming whether we like it or not, um, and the physicians and the medical industry have to get around it. 
And the second is really value-based care, which which we will not start now because that will take a whole separate discussion. <laughs> yeah. But the whole concept that you actually need to provide value to the patients and actually value is defined as value in the eye of the patient is, is a new contemporary concept that medicine mm-hmm. is going to move into it. Well, and there are, you're right, all sorts of frontiers there. I will point listeners to uh, the podcast that I did recently with Dr. Dean Gruner, who recently retired as CEO of the ThetaCare Health System. That was episode 288, where he talks about some of their experiments and lessons learned around value-based purchasing, um, uh, accountable care organizations, and and the like. So we did have a, a good, robust discussion about that. Um, but uh, Dr. Kane, I, w- I want to thank you for uh, taking time out of uh, your, your busy schedule to um, talk with us today. Um, do you have uh, contact information you'd be willing to share if there's anybody listening uh, physicians or otherwise who might want to um, engage with you on some of these topics? Absolutely. Uh, they can uh, um, email me uh, at um, zkane, first initial last name, at acpm.health, uh, and I will be delighted to talk to people interact with them. All right. Well, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, Dr. Zev Kane has been our guest today talking about, I think, you know, very important frontiers of uh, improving healthcare, reducing clinical variation through uh, Lean, Six Sigma, and better science, I think, as, as you put it earlier. So uh, again, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It, it's my pleasure. And I, again, encourage the listeners to reach out to me if they need to. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.